Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two fan favorites back, popular demand, Parker Thompson, Ash Fontana. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Eric. We're here to talk about a very emotional, even spiritual topic for some venture capitalists. Portfolio construction, fun size. Doesn't get any more fun than this, guys. So there are a bunch of topics we want to get into. Concentrated versus diversified, fun size. We uh, had a Twitter thread the other the other week about this. And anytime you have a Twitter thread about portfolio construction on Twitter, it gets, uh, it gets a little heated. I'm starting mm-hmm. to think Twitter is not a good place to really work through nuanced ideas. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe just in venture capital. I don't know. Twitter needs a whiteboard feature. Yeah, exactly. Parker, before even getting into some topic, why do we think that portfolio construction fund size is such an emotional issue for, for people? You know, why do I, they have such strong opinions about it? Yeah, I, it's hard to speak for other people. It's always a little bit dangerous. I think, you know, people have their strategies. Um, there's a, you know, relatively long history in venture of everybody kind of doing the same thing, right? Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that, right? And over the last maybe 10 years, there's been a lot more innovation, people trying different stuff. I think for some people, that's maybe they don't understand it. Like, why would anyone do that as opposed to an intellectual understanding? I think for some people, they just know how hard it is to make money in the business. And so they're like, they look at their model and how hard it is to make money with their model. And they're like, this looks way harder. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I'm curious what you think, Ash. Yeah. I think it's because as an investor, your portfolio is your product. It is the thing that you have to design and bring to market and sell to limited partners. And that's what they buy off you. Because otherwise, if they could construct their own portfolio and design their own product, their own, they would do it themselves. And so if we don't think, very hard about and market very well and signal to others that we have a good product, then we don't have a job. We don't have anything to sell. So I think the reason investors get very, I guess, emotional or at least engage a lot with the topic of portfolio construction is sort of the same reason why any founder gets really emotional or engaged with any sort of conception of like what their product is or product design or product delivery because it's our product. Yeah. Let's get into that. Ash, you run Zeta Ventures, which is a $100 million fund. Uh, 125 is fund two, yeah. With a fairly concentrated strategy. But you've also, you know, you were super early at AngelList, first person AngelList, I believe. So you've seen the the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. So why, uh, when leaving AngelList, did you start a fund with a bigger fund size? You could have gone smaller mm-hmm. and much, much more concentrated approach instead of a more diversified approach. Or the trade-offs and how did you think about that? Yeah, it, it just depends on what your edge is at any given time and you design your product around your edge. I think that's what you have to start with. You know, do I have an informational edge? Do I have an analytical edge? Do I have an access edge or whatever your edge may be? And at AngelList, AngelList the edge was essentially access. Like you can see and get into thousands and thousands of opportunities at companies per year. And you can do that in a systematic way with very low cost as in low transaction costs, but also low ongoing overhead of managing all those investments because we built software around that stuff. So the software gave us this edge. And so we were playing to that edge or using that edge. And that meant making lots and lots of smaller investments. 
You know, at Zeta, we have a very different edge, which is much more of an analytical edge. That is, we are completely focused on intelligent systems and data as a form of competitive advantage. And we always have been since 2013. And, you know, we have a playbook around that. We have a network around that. We have all sorts of different ways that we value data sets and companies and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, with a slightly different type of edge, it means two things. It means maybe, and I'm like, I will be the first to admit that this is a big maybe, you can justify a little bit more concentration if you have a bit more of an edge. It depends on the magnitude of your edge. But it also means we just have to put more time into each of these companies to to help them execute on these strategies that we ostensibly know something about, building data network effects and whatever else. And with that extra time, that extra time is a constraint, right? And so if you have to put that much time into the company, you just can't invest in that many companies. So you have to be slightly more concentrated. So that's why the two strategies that I've pursued in my career over the last 10 years, I had an investing career before that with completely different strategies in different parts of the market, have been different because we just had different edge. And not to simplify too much, but mm-hmm. you couldn't necessarily hire operating partners to, to help the companies and be able to invest in more? Or? Yeah, that's interesting. Like there's a lot of different things to play with here, right? Like you can play with operating partners as a way to, to help companies. We certainly think about it for sure. But for now, we are still building up our playbooks. We're still building up our expertise and we're still sort of figuring out if other people really understand this stuff. And there is also like a bit of an agency problem with operating partners that you have to solve and is very, very hard to solve. And I think some firms are well on their way to solving that. But that being, you know, if they're not fully bought into and incentivized to make the whole fund work, they might act differently than if they were. Right. So, Parker, you were at, you're, you're at Angelus now. Before that, you were at 500 Startups, which along with YC and others sort of pioneered a high volume investing with the thesis, I think, being, feel free to edit, that the name of the game is outliers and, and the more investments you make, the better chance you have of, of hitting one. Yeah. I mean, I think Ash really nailed it, right? Like you have to have a portfolio construction strategy that is aligned and takes advantage of what your edge is. And so in both the, uh, in all the examples you just mentioned from Y Combinator to 500 to AngelList, right? They all operate slightly differently, but the idea there is let's do something that generates deal flow at scale. And then let's take advantage of that deal flow at scale to generate more consistent results. So in each of these strategies, I'll speak for them and they might characterize it a little bit differently. You're sort of saying, how do we maximize the probability of a very good venture return? So a 3x in venture is generally considered a good return, right? So that would be a top quartile return. How do we maximize that maybe at the expense of a 10x return, which is great. I mean, maybe Zeta will hit 10x. They have some great taste in startups. I hope so. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that comes at the trade-off. You get that concentration and um, you accept a little bit more um, risk in the distribution. That can be great for them. That can be great for LPs. You know, 500 and AngelList specifically, I'll, I'll speak less about YC. We're saying, hey, look, we think we can generate enough good deal flow that we can get put together portfolios that are five to 10 times bigger than a traditional venture portfolio, obviously with five to 10 times less ownership per company, generally speaking, and do quite well. So I think that's very much predicated on deal flow, and you're going to operate very differently than you might if you were Zeta. So Ash has taken board seats. He was telling me before this podcast, he's like, I'm pumped about my day. I'm going to work with companies. We're getting hands-on. We're doing stuff. We just 
AngelList is the opposite of that, right? Yeah, very different um, days there. Yeah, so um, these things can both work, but they're both making assumptions about what kind of deal flow you right. can get to feed these machines. So, is there a hybrid there? So Cliff from Ulu, if he was here, he would say, I think his fund tries to do both, which is not sacrifice the upside by ba- what he does is uh, his high volume, and he also puts all the money up front. So no follow on, and he tries to own 10% of companies in pre-seed and seed. Um, so is it a necessary trade-off of cap your downside, but also cap your upside? Or Well, look, the way to think about it is, you know, Gash, how many companies do you guys do in a fund? At least 20, and then ideally more, ideally creeping up to 25 and 30, but it depends if we're able to recycle. Yeah, and, and like what that. kind of reserve do you guys have? Uh, it's a little bit more than a dollar for a dollar, basically. Yeah, okay. So you yeah. got, let's say- Like half up front, reserve. half over the A and the B. Yeah. So for this, you know, sake of simple math, let's pretend they didn't reserve as well and they're doing 20 companies. So they're putting, you know, 5% of their fund in any given company. And with Ulu, if they're trying to buy 10%, let's say they do 100 companies, right? You know, regardless of the percent ownership that they have, they're putting 1% of their fund. So, you know, these guys are putting five times the amount of their fund in any given deal that changes the magnitude of the outcome that you need. The reserve further adds complication, right? I mean, I think when you're putting in money up front, what that means is you only have to make one decision, right? Um, I think where, you know, a firm like Zeta, and feel free to pop in here, is going to have an edge is... You know, if you're going to reserve 50 or 60 cents out of every dollar to follow on, really the edge you want to create for yourself is asymmetric information with respect to the next round because Ash doesn't get to price the next round, right? That company goes to Andreessen, Andreessen picks a price, and Ash has to say, okay, I know more about this company than Andreessen. Do I think this is a good bet in absolute terms? And do I think it's a good bet relative to the price that Andreessen has decided that it's worth, which are actually both interesting pieces of data, right? It's not just, hey, what's our best company? Um, when you see a company get marked up that's underpriced, you want to lean in hard. So I think the high volume strategies necessarily lend themselves to markets where risk is coming out at a lower rate than prices are going up, where you as an individual are better at analyzing deals early and where you don't want to spend as much time or you don't have as much value add after you make the investment. So AngelList is the extreme example of that, literally as a firm. We're not doing anything for these companies. These syndicate leads are. So, you know, it's a long answer to your question, but it's 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 complicated. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's what I would say as well. It's a very nuanced and sort of spectral consideration in that there's so much that happens between rounds. There's so much that happens in the market that you can't control. And, you know, for us... I was very, I sort of hesitated a little bit when you said, well, how much do you reserve? We don't actually have a number. We do it bottom up for every single company based on the initial valuation, based on where we think their next round will be and whatever else. Like every investment we make, we we do that. And it's just like every follow-on round, we have a completely new investment process. So we have this whole process when we first sort of start working with a company. And when they raise their next round, we do the whole process again. It's very, very nuanced. You could reserve all the money in the world for a company and then someone comes in and prices it ridiculously. And, you know, you're not, you can't justify making good money on that follow on investment. So that reserve, those reserves go somewhere else. You know, it changes in the market as well. Like just you know, hopefully, uh, this week or so, uh, we'll be closing an investment in a company that, you know, if you look at the price, if you look at all sorts of things about it, you would wonder, 
oh, that's interesting. Like, that's not what Zeta would usually do. But in a sense, it's exactly what we would do. And we have worked so closely with this company. We know so much more about it than anyone else. We're able to, to do what we're about to do there is in like price it, how we're, how we're pricing it. So it's very, very nuanced. And I just don't think with changing markets, changing company situations and whatever else, you should really be ultra dogmatic about stuff up front. You should be realistic about your constraints as Parker's sort of set out. You should be realistic about how much time and money you have and you should have a plan, but you know, the planning is more valuable than the plan. Yeah, what, what this is the Mike yes. Tyson quote? Everybody has a yeah, you, know, you, get, to, you get punched in the face. Exactly, and so getting punched in the face in this, I, I did used to box, but I don't wow. box anymore because I have a bit of a problem with it. But I'll continue it. Getting punched in the face in this world means the market just totally turns on you, yeah. and that can mean two things. It could turn in the way where everyone's just pricing things ridiculously, and some mega fund comes in and crams you down really hard. And if you don't have your board seat, if you don't have control, if you don't have a whole bunch of protections that you negotiated up front because you put a bunch of money in up front and you led the round and set the terms, you're in big trouble. The company could be doing great, but your outcome can be completely ruined by a later stage investor's terms. Or the market could go the other way. It could just completely tank and the companies that you have supported need your money because no one else is going to invest in them. And so you need a lot of reserves. So... You got to have a plan, but um, you got to be super flexible. Don't quote me here, but I think the industry average of outliers, I think unicorns is is one percent, and I think Mrs. Cliff's data that Sequoia's, you know, one of the best in the world at five percent. Um, and so if if Zeta has twenty company, twenty five companies, and does as good as Sequoia, may have one outlier, but if does closer to average, may have zero. So why not take some of that follow on and put it into more companies if if you could get some operating partners to help. Yes. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. So one, let's just start with the data. Yes, that sort of high level number. Let's go with that. 1% outliers, whatever else. There was a really good Cambridge study about three or four years ago, uh, Cambridge Associates who review all the funds and have access to a lot of fund information because they advise many, many people on investing in, in, uh, in private equity. And they showed of the top 100 exits, how many new funds invested in them versus established funds. And the new funds had a huge presence there. So I think the data shows that new funds are just as likely or almost as likely to participate in the top exits in the technology industry as existing funds. So there's there's other data uh, to look at there, um, which would sort of say that newer funds can get involved in that, get involved in those exits. Two, you know, do you need those sorts of outcomes? Well, you do if you have a billion-dollar fund. Like to return a billion-dollar fund, you better own a 20 30% of a couple of companies that exit for a couple of billion dollars. If you have a $100 million fund, you don't need that. Um, you need 10 to 15% of companies that exit for 100 or $200 million. And without sort of going too much into our strategy and taking up too much airtime there, you know, we are focused on companies that apply machine learning to specific verticals and – a lot of them have the potential to be super valuable multi-billion dollar companies and are well on their way to being multi-billion dollar companies. But some of them, you know, they're at least, you know, the cynical view is they're in a market that's only a couple of hundred million, will only allow them to be worth a couple of hundred million dollars. And you know what? If that happens with a lot of our companies, that's completely fine. One, they've done great work to completely change an industry and two, we'll make money. So, you know, do you need those exits is another thing. And then the third thing, the third part of your question or to unpack is, you know, why not scale up with operating partners? And, and look, just to sort of set the conversation, if you look at, um, Jerry Neumann's work 
on this stuff, power laws and venture capital, which is absolutely fantastic. You know, he, he, he takes the data of the distribution of returns. He shows inventory, shows that it follows a power law. And then he makes the point, which a lot of people find very counterintuitive, which is that if you look at the probability distribution, and this is the counterintuitive part, if, if returns follow a power law, you are more likely, your, your average return goes up the more companies you invest in ad infinitum, right? Because it's an exponential function. So, more the better is basically it. And to guarantee yourself a very good fund with 5X or whatever else, net gross of fees, you need to invest in a million companies. So, <laughs> yeah, you should just invest in as many companies as possible. But again, they're operating constraints. Yeah, math so, versus reality, right? Math versus yeah. reality. Yeah. yeah, the math is so far from reality. And so, you know, I just say a few things. One, why get in this business if you don't believe you have an edge? And two... How much will operating partners, you're not going to have a million operating partners. Right. So I, I think that's a good thing to experiment with, but it doesn't get you all the way there. So again, the consideration is nuanced. And, you know, for us, we'd make that decision, decision one partner at a time or, you know, a couple of companies at a time or one fund at a time. And I guess the question is, do you think you'd have a worse performing fund if you had 50 companies, some operating partners and push some of that following capital up front? So there's a lot, there are a lot of variables there. All else being equal, just following the math, as Parker sort of made the fine distinction between math and reality, just following the math, Sarah's Paribus, no, you would have a better performing fund. However, the reality is that you're not going to scale perfectly and that you're not going to have consistent, you're not going to scale your investment selection and your management and nothing's going to scale perfectly. So maybe, maybe not. By the math, yes. In reality, probably not. Yeah, I mean, a different way of asking that is if you're seeing deals that are as good as the ones that you're doing and you're saying no to those, you could probably afford to grow your portfolio size. Obviously, it would change the way that you spend your day. Um, and that's maybe, I think, where we're talking more about reality. But no one should apply math that's theoretically better to deal flow that's not going to support it, right? <laughs> I, I wanted to yeah. pick up on something that Ash said because he sort of, he, he said something really compelling, but it's interesting to kind of emphasize it and follow it through. So he says, you, you got a billion dollar fund, you've got to own 20% of multiple companies, right? There's a good um, Mark Andreessen line where he says, you know, there's 15 companies a year that matter. And what he really means is, I've got a ton of money and I need to get it to make, uh, you know, I need a 3x fund on a billion dollars or whatever it is. So there's only 15 companies that matter to me, right? And that's fair. They're doing great stuff. Ash saying, actually, my opportunity set is much larger because my fund size. So maybe for him, it's 150 or 500 companies that matter. As you scale down that fund size, right? And where I think often this conversation gets emotional is if you've got a $10 million fund or a $1 million fund, actually your opportunity set is even larger, right? Your ability to have, you know, a 100x fund if you're Chris Saka only exists because you've got these teeny tiny funds. And there, a lot of the, you know, received wisdom on these things, there's 15 companies that matter. You got to own 20%. You got to take boards to sell these things. They just kind of go out the window. There's an intersection of math and reality there that works really well for the people who have an edge operating in that environment, which is very different than the one that, uh, say, Mark Andreessen is talking about. Yeah, and what Parker's saying is, like, well-supported empirically. And I'll take an example from what some people consider the private equity world, but is sort of the venture world, which is Constellation Software, fantastic fund, 
that has done very, very well over the years. And what they say they do is they invest in vertical market software, which is basically vertical SaaS, like pick some niche industry like lawn mowing and find a company that has a really solid subscriber base and sell some workflow product, a piece of software for the lawn mowing industry. And they've done that over and over and over again. As they have grown and as their funds have got bigger, they have found, and Mark Landed writes this in his letters, for the, has written this in his letters for the last couple of years, that their opportunity set is too small now. Um, so, you know, what Parker's saying is, is well supported if you look at some of those funds that got bigger and bigger. And look, I haven't spoken to Chris Sarker about his fund, but obviously fund one was incredible, fund two was incredible. But like, look, as the fund got bigger and bigger, he, for various reasons, decided to pull back. And we've seen that with a lot of people in the industry. You've seen a lot of people in the industry who either did super well with the small fund size, like Steve Anderson at Baseline, stick there, despite the fact that he could raise whatever he wants to raise, given his returns are incredible, apparently, or uh, they've left the industry. And obviously, people have different reasons for doing that. But I think there's like, among all of this, there's some empirical support for what Parker's saying. So let's say we're, we're both raising funds here, or you're all raising funds here, and it's fundraising is no constraint. Um, you can raise whatever you want. How do you think about, you know, 125 versus 250 versus 400 yeah. versus a billion? You know? <laughs> yeah. So again, it just depends on your strategy. So, you know, I'll talk about how we think about it at Zeta and then I'll give some completely different examples. Yeah. So what are the trade-offs there? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we have three premises when we think about when we start thinking about what, what fund size should we have and what portfolio, how should we construct a portfolio for that fund? The first premise is that returns follow a power law distribution. That's empirically true. And the probability of an exit value increases as you, as you increase your number of investments, as I, as I said, said before. The second premise is there's just a lot of uncertainty full stop. Like even if we think we have an incredible edge, we still don't know 90%. Right. The, the, the unknown unknowns and the known unknowns and whatever still make up like 90% of the knowledge out there. And we, ha- we, sorry, we only know 10% of all of that. So we have to have some sort of portfolio. And the third is premise is that we can add some value, which is like we have some sort of edge. So what do we do? Well, we maximize the size of the portfolio with the constraints that we have and the constraints that we have are, are time and whatever else. The second thing we do is we keep the bet size constant. So this is um, something called the Kelly criterion, which I think is quite applicable in venture. And a lot of people argue against that, which is given that the amount of the total uncertainty around any given decision is so large, don't start thinking, you know, a little bit more about the 15th company you invested in than the 14th, just because you knew the founder for longer or whatever, you know, you should write a $5 million check to this founder or a $1 million check to that founder because you don't haven't known them for as long. The point is you pretty much know very little about both of those prospects. So you should keep the bet size totally consistent. So, so they're the sort of the principles we have. Oh, so the, the other one is given that the outcomes are so extreme, when you have one of those extreme outcomes, you've got to maximize your ownership. You've got to have a lot of ownership to return the whole fund. So again, to summarize, our strategy is have as big a portfolio as you can, given the constraints, keep the bet size constant and maximize ownership. Again, given the degree of uncertainty. So, you know, what that means in terms of fund size is, all right, so you take, you figure out how many companies per fund you can invest in. And then you take, you figure out how much ownership you need of those companies. And then you can start getting to some conception of check size. And you can also get to some conception of how how high a valuation can we invest in. So that's that. Now, 
Of course, if you have a completely different strategy, you'd raise a completely different fund. Like, you know, I think a huge opportunity right now is investing in new types of hardware. But to support those companies, you need 50 to $100 million per company. And they have very different exit environment, whatever else. So I com- construct a completely different fund. But um, anyway, they're the premises we have. And Yeah, I, I'm, uh, this is great because now I get to, you You said the traditional VC thing. I've been yep. triggered and I get to, I get to respond <laughs> to it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, Ash said something here, which I think is correct in the context of the way that he's talking about his model. But he said, look, you've got to get certain target ownership in a company to have it return your fund, right? And I think a this is the common way that everybody talks about funds. I actually wish we talked about it in exactly the opposite way, which is what he's really saying, I think, is, look, if I expect a 10x blended multiple on this investment, I need to put 10% of my company into this. So you can work at that from the perspective of ownership. I, th- I just think it's much more useful to think about what are the multiples at the stage that I'm investing at? And how do I get enough of my fund concentrated in those winners so that they matter when they do? In terms of dollars. Yeah, in terms of dollars, right? And this is why, you know, you can talk about what a good fund return is without actually talking about ownership at all, right? It's what percentage of my fund did I put into this deal? And what was the multiple at exit? And we get hung up around ownership because it matters in a bunch of other ways, but it actually doesn't matter in terms of what the fund return is going to be. Yeah, and in this sense, what I was saying about keeping the bet size constant is sort of irrelevant, is sort of the same point. Well, and that, yeah, and so to build on that, right, what you're really saying is, look, if we're going to have 50% reserve and we're going to do 25 companies, we're going to put 2% into each bet, and we believe that that will lower the variance of outcome in our fund. The way that I like to talk about that, because people ask me, you know, hey, AngelList, how do you know that the deals you're doing with Zeta aren't their, you know, worst ones, right? And I always say, well, look, if Ash knew which his crappy deals were, he just wouldn't do them, right? So we are making the same assumption when we're co-investing with Ash. We're saying, look, Ash is a high judgment guy. He's going to be wrong most of the time. So are we. So is USV. So is Andreessen. But if we can build a representative random sample of all of those deals, we can aggregate a pool of investments that's going to perform uh, like the uh, the asset class in general. But it's not totally random in the sense that, or when we think about co-investing with firms or even people, some, we sometimes get quote unquote adversely selected, like the ones that are super yeah, yeah. competitive. We take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's like the Groucho Marx. Call, you yeah. know, why, why would I want to be a member of any club that would have me? So you've got to construct a strategy that answers that question. In Ash's case, it's that he's got a great accent. He's a smart guy. He can sit on your board. Playing on easy mode. Uh, yeah, exactly. We got a, we got a different yeah. uh, strategy, right? We're working with these syndicate leads who provide some value directly to the companies. And we're basically paying, I think about the carry that we would pay right. the syndicate leads yeah. as basically we're paying them to do the work to get us in. Right. Because if we just said, hey, AngelList is a place where if you're raising around from somebody good, you can show up and we'll give you money. We absolutely would get right. those people. But who- when you get into Ash's deals and you realize that there's some of Ash's deals that you can't get into, do you just say, hey, Ash is a great investor. All of his deals are good and you, he can't even really tell which are his bad deals or do you say, oh, shit. No, I don't, I don't think he can tell. I mean, you know, we've looked at this data. I'm sure actually Ash has looked at this data, specific data set, which is uh, Naval Ravikant's fund, HitForge. Um, and we use the, like, Naval may be one of the top few investors, certainly at early stage of a generation, right? And when you look at how he made decisions in this fund that invested in Uber and Twitter and a number of other unicorns, he just made he he did a bunch of variable bets 
And they were just wrong. Yeah. He would have performed much better had he said, look, we're going to put a, you know, a fixed size a lot more in Uber. each of these. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We wish we would have put more in Uber, but hindsight's twenty twenty, <laughs> right? So I think it's very hard. And I, I very much subscribe to this, um, this specific model that Ash is talking about in terms of like, let's find companies that we're highly convicted about and let's make equal bets into them. Yep. Hmm. So you said ownership matters in other ways? Well, ownership matters in ways like Ash alluded to this earlier, right? Like, you know, for, first of all, if I want to do 500 uh, investments in a fund and I've got a $500,000 fund, that just won't work, right? A company doesn't want a $1,000 check, right? So there's minimum check size. There's a concept of major investor rights, which matters to some extent, right? Which is like the absolute ownership or dollars that I put in. And there's a threshold and investors that have or above the threshold have certain rights that people who are below it don't. There's pro rata rights. Later on, there are control rights, right? I think the earlier you are, the less all of these things matter. The later you go, um, the more that they matter. Related to this is Ash alluded to having reserves, right? I don't get to keep companies alive when I think that they're undervalued by the market and ash does and that's that's a trade-off in models right yeah that so, can be a huge edge yeah right yeah. like when no one else will fund a company because their perception of the company is not very positive and you know because you work with this company day to day that the company is actually doing really well or on the brink of something great or whatever else you know you can invest at that point when no one else is investing and you, you'll get rewarded for that big time yeah so you know i think earlier stage like say these things matter a little bit less you know within reason right you can write a 25k check or 250k check and actually sometimes that's easier because you know ash is saying he's gonna be on the board of some company they want his help he's gonna write a million dollar check i might not be able to put in a million dollars because i'm not going to be able to do those things for the company um but they'll take my 25k check so size size can cut both ways in terms of uh, check sizing yeah and can creating a portfolio that allows you to lead at least some of the time gives you the option to be a price maker rather than a price taker and you know a lot of the time being a price taker is fine because the market is pricing things reasonably but where the market is pricing things unreasonably you want to be a price maker you definitely do not want to be a price taker otherwise you just have to accept sitting it out for two or three years and you know the whole concept of like don't just do something stand there is very hard for a lot of people. <laughs> um, it's very hard. Pretty much all of us have action bias. And unless you are super, super disciplined, you're going to want to have the option of sometimes making the price rather than taking yeah, the price. And, I mean, and that really, requires check, a big check. Really concretely, I think that's right. I mean, I operate in the early stage and I'm very much a price taker. Um, but the reason I want to work with folks like Ash who are really disciplined about it is price does matter, right? If your cost mm-hmm. basis is six versus 12, you got to be twice as good to get the same return, right? So I'm often working with folks like Ash to put together rounds when I've committed to something. I think I'm working with one right now um, that I got to send your way. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, Yeah, exactly. We've sort of talked about a price range. Um, what you tend to see is that folks that are writing the million-dollar check put together rounds in a more disciplined way. Yeah. And that's actually often better for the company, right? right. So I like to work with companies who – are optimizing for something other than price and then put together a round that's a win-win there. Yeah. You know, I, I tell companies like, look, like you can get this thing done 100K at a time to 2 million in this market and do it at, you know, Paul Graham calls this high fidelity fundraising, start at six, end up at 18, have, have a 20 people on your cap table and nobody who's really paying attention every yeah, day good, meeting with you every week. Good luck to you. Yeah, you can do that. 
I just don't think that's in your best interest as a company. And what you're really optimizing for is the size of your slice rather than the size of the pie. My gut is that that's just a negative pattern in founders and those founders do worse. Yep. So I try to, you know, kind of get the both best of both worlds where I'm going to commit to a deal early and then help them think through how to put together a round that's going right. to be good for the company and a win for the investors as well. Let's dig in more to reserves. So I'm mm-hmm. curious, Ash, why you chose that number instead of a higher number, instead of a lower number, and then not to put too straw man out there, but I think Founder Collective has a strategy where they try to put it most up front. Yeah. Um, almost all of it. Yeah. yeah, almost all of it up front and compared to maybe a firm like on a first round that reserves quite a bit for what did they view about the world differently? Uh, they're in a completely different market. And so in general, the yes. market like New York or a different um, city or they do invest in consumer, they invest in stuff that's not machine learning and whatever else. So, I'll say in general, yes, it's great to have most of your dollars in at a lower price, right? Our return is a function of price out over price in. So I, I have no sort of general problem or argument against that strategy. I think it's probably, probably really good for them. What I know, you know, when we think about there's so many different variables here, it's how many rounds the company going to raise and what ownership do we have and blah, blah, blah. But what's the thing we can't control? What's like the immutable variable in this big calculus? or calculation the immutable variable is exits like we can't control what the market is paying for companies and so what we do which is investing companies with data assets and data network effects and real uh, machine learning technology serving enterprise customers most of the exits are around in the nine figure range and so we look at the distribution of exits and that's what we start with and all of our calculations follow from that and so what we know is that to massively simplify it, we do this as a calculation, not as like a back of the envelope, let's talk through it thing. But to simplify it in a way that I can articulate orally, most of the exits happen at the low nine figures after the Series B. And if we own 10% of companies at the Series B and that company exits for low nine figures and we have 20 of those companies in a fund and we assume a standard loss rate and whatever else, we can get to a fund that's 3x net of fees. And our investors are happy enough with that. So that's what we start with. Now, obviously, we hope that we have a lower loss rate in the market. You know, we assume a 42% loss rate. Our loss rate right now is zero. So we hope that that's going to be true. And if that stays true, then we'll get a much higher than a 3x. We hope that a lot of our companies raise less money and exit for more. So we get diluted less and we have higher ownership in companies that exit for a higher amount. We hope that a lot of companies maybe raise more and just exit for more. Like, of course, we hope for different outcomes. But given what we know, the exit environment, we track back from that and we think, okay, we need 10% of the company by the Series B. And so we look at where we invest at the seed stage, how much ownership we can realistically get based on founders' dilution preferences, how much money we have to put in for that. And then we look at how many investments we have to make in the portfolio. And let's just simplify. We say we have $100 million. We have to make at least 20 investments. We have to put in 2 to $3 million up front. They go in and raise an A and a B. Our pro rata in that A and the B, assuming certain valuations, like their first valuation is 5 to $10 million, Their A valuation is 20 to 30 Their B valuation is 40 to 50 Then we need another $2 million, So that's $5 million. $5 million times 20 is $100 million. Yeah. I mean, I think about it this way, right? Like reserve can either, you know, make your fund better, you can lose money on those checks, they can perform um, less well. So let's say you're a seed investor, right? And you're reserving, you know, 50 to 70% of your fund for follow on, which some funds do. 
your blended cost basis is pretty high, right? You're really a Series A investor, right? And so there's two reasons that you want to be a Series A investor who does seed deals, right? Who who buys that and just follows Parada. One is you think that you couldn't get into that deal if you waited to the A, right? So you're you're buy, you're basically saying like, look, these seed checks are a loss leader, right? For that follow-on check. So that's one reason you might decide to spend 30% or 50% of your fund on checks you don't think are as good as the, the next one, right? The other reason is you think that those checks are actually going to give you an edge, right? That you're going to have this asymmetric information. I think different market environments imply different strategies there. So when I was getting started in venture in 2013, I was actually much more inclined to write checks up front. And kind of my initial experience was, wow, by the time these things get a markup, I don't know that much more. And they're really not that much less risky. So I'm just like, all I'm really doing is deciding whether I want to put more money into this company at a higher cost for the same thing, right? So it felt really um, like a good strategy to me to just max my deal flow and put all that money in up front, right? The, ri- the risk hadn't gone down higher than the price. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And you maybe know more about that because you've been working with a company. I think the market is a little bit different today. And maybe I'm a little bit different today, right? So I think that today I'm much more um, inclined to reserve more capital and, and put more capital so in the following rounds. That. Why is that? Rounds just look better. Yeah, like the rounds just look better. And again, maybe maybe I know more today than I knew then and and so on as well. But the A's seem to be a little bit more rational. I mean, 2013, 2014 was kind of nuts, right? The seed stage, it was all these uncapped notes and the A's were happening real quick. And I mean, you could argue the market's still a little bit nuts, but I feel like comparatively what I see now is much more attractive Series A's. I'm working on a Series B for one of my companies that, you know, from a just like a pattern matching perspective, just looks ugly, but I'm so excited about this company and it's priced the way you might have seen or we were seeing some of the A's priced um, four or five years ago. So, you know, you got to think about the market. And I don't, I think people articulate truisms rather than talking very concretely about like, look, what's the risk adjusted yeah. return? What's your blended cost basis? What are our assumptions about these exits, right? Like, what's the ceiling on these things? Because to Ash's point, I think it's totally right. You got to work backwards from there to a set of math that's going to work and then adjust as you go to reality as you're making individual decisions because everything is, you know, everything is a one-off. Yeah. And using this sort of math reality, um, distinction that Parker, yeah, um, that Parker, it is a dichotomy. Yeah. That Parker brought up really early. The reality that's really important to discuss here, which, you know, can really go against the math a lot of the time is, Humans are humans and they really key off signals from other humans. And what this means in this context is if you're a seed investor and you don't support a company going into an A at all, you can completely tank their round. And when you think about it, like rule number one is keep the company in business because they're probably right. Like most companies we see, they or every company we see really has an amazing idea. It's just whether the timing's right. And so you've got to keep them alive. And keeping them alive means supporting them in the face of other investors that are coming in and want to see your support. Some follow investors don't care, but pretty much all Series A investors will want to see you do something. Well, this full check, your half check. And so, like, I mean, the Founders Collective guys would say, look, we want to write our check up front because we want to be seed investors. We want our blended cost basis to be a seed valuation. And everybody knows they're very high judgment. 
and don't follow on into these yeah. companies. So it's a marketing thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And if it's, you're consistent, maybe you could work. But maybe. what do them in first round? And let's just say for sake of uh, experience, for conversation that they have the same skill sets, same brand, and they just have different strategies and, different and they invest sizes. in the same types of companies. Look, I mean, first round, I like to give them a hard time, right? Because they are often the third or fourth round today, right? Like that's just fun size is destiny in this world, right? right? Because when you're thinking about this market, right, there's sort of the absolute number of exits and these sorts of things. But then there's also like, well, how big's my fund? Right. And But let's let's say for sake of conversation that they could raise any fund size they wanted, which maybe they can, and they chose those specific... I think they've chosen very different strategies. I mean, Founders Collective is, uh, if I've got this right, I think three partners and one or two associates it's it's like classic seed where it's just like look it's us you deal with us we answer our own email we answer our own phones we get hands-on with these companies we write one check boom simple it's it's just great right first round has a very different model it's also great they've got this i don't know how many employees now but they've got this giant team they've got a software operation they've got an events operation they're in a bunch of cities and you know They've done something really impressive, which is they've evolved their business model and continue to be good, right? So where Josh Koppelman started probably looked a lot more like what Founders Collective is doing, Modulo, Reserve, and so on. Um, Where they're at is they've said, we can build something unique in this market that we think is compelling and is going to generate phenomenal returns, which is, I mean, that's a great thing. There's not that much innovation and venture, right? We talk about two and 20, 20 companies, 50% reserve. That's fine. But it's great when you see people thinking a little bit outside of that box and saying there are opportunities in this market that don't fit in there. Right. And some of it is stylistic. Like some people want, you know, build huge platforms. Other people want small, small I think shops. all of it's stylistic, right? If you don't have a strategy that is that plays to your comparative advantage, you're going to suck. Like, I don't think I would be a very good growth investor. I think my comparative advantage is when this thing is messy and it's early and no one else believes in you. And I can say, like, I see it. Go tell people I'm in and let's do this round. Right. So, you know, you got you got to, you know, do what interests you. I think some investors evolve too, right? They're like, well, I'm getting older. I don't understand the stuff that I used to understand that the kids are doing. Right. So I'm not going to invest in it. So you see investors go migrate from consumer to right. b2b and that's that's fine right those are self-aware people optimizing yeah. the way they spend their time to uh maximize return for investors you know given the reality of the market given the reality about themselves right. yeah and i think taking a step back uh, i was just thinking what would a listener be thinking right now they'd be thinking these guys just keep adding all this nuance to this discussion like give me some answers right <laughs> and like give, give me the truisms and we can't give truisms for all the reasons we've right. articulated. It is nuanced. And so... Just put your money into Zedin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. Exactly. Let me do it for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, I think maybe something worth introducing into the discussion is, okay, if this is nuanced, if things are changing all the time, if investors are changing their skills, if the market's changing, if your operating model's changing and whatever else, like, why are there so many funds that, one, look the same and... Two, grow over time, like the predominant trend in the industry is that funds grow over time. They don't stay the same. And why do funds just keep the same strategy for a long period of time? And I think it really goes to the norms in the industry around fund structure and fees. And I think if we had an industry where funds had different fee structures 
is in the managers of these funds were compensated differently. Mm-hmm. We'd see people change their funds more often. I mean, I think what I'd add to that is, look, like the LPs are the customers. Yeah. And, you know, these folks are real smart people, but it's worth understanding. And this is not obvious, right? Like for most of them, the way they think about venture is, this is a very small part of my portfolio and I'm looking for a really high risk product. So... First of all, they're not paying that much attention. They don't understand the inside baseball as well as as we might when we're nerding out on this stuff. And, you know, two, they want a specific sort of return profile, right? So they don't like two and 20 that much. They understand the problem with it, many of them, right? It's like, oh, your AUM grows and you're going to get rich either way, right? This is true for big funds. It's not unfortunately true for, you know, us at the low end of the market. But what they don't, I think, understand as well and where, you know, I spend a lot of time when I talk to LPs on this stuff is how the market is changing in these nuanced ways, right? It's hard to push them outside this 2 and 20 model because even though they hate it, it, at least we know that the funds that return good money do it, right? So it's actually, I think, hard to innovate because the customer, who really is the LP, when VCs tell you that startups are the customers, we can like you and whatever doesn't make us bad, but like the customer is the LP and there's pressure there to do it in this one way. Yeah. A couple of things I want to ask. So one is, um, you know, I want to sort of challenge or add nuance to some of the truisms we brought up a little bit. One is the idea that there's sort of no superior strategy out there. So the idea that, Hey, if access here is your advantage, have a more diversified portfolio, or Hey, if you have some informational edge, it helps you help companies in some special way, have a more concentrated portfolio. That's sort of one Truism that I want, when I, the other truism is, um, that some people have said about the 500 model for a long time that if you cap, yeah, you cap your downside, but you also cap your upside. And is there a, can uh, I mean, we have, that's can, a fact. Yeah, but can we have it all? <laughs> is there, if you push it all, if it, all the follow one up front, can you have high portfolio, high volume and high ownership in a way that doesn't cap your upside? You can buy more ownership up front, but you're making a bet, right? You're, you, when you say, look, I'm going to put all my money on first check. You are asserting something is true about the market that may or may not be true, right? Yeah. This is a better way to deploy capital because prices are going to go up faster than risk comes out, yeah. right? So if that's you, true, then yeah, great. You're going to make a bunch of money. But, you know, when you work through these models, the smart person gets to the point where they're like, okay, well, there are trade-offs and this is really hard and I have to make some bets. And if I'm wrong, I will lose money. And there's no, there's no like solve for that, you know? You're assuming you know more now than later. And I think, um, you know, a lot of these strategies like in titrating capital over time, so holding reserves and investing over three rounds instead of all up front, strategies like spending a lot of time with founders, strategies like growing your fund size very, very, very slowly or, you know, constantly reconsidering fund size and whatever else. I at least pursue them because I think they have more intellectual and behavioral integrity. Like I can think that. I'm the best investor in the world. I can look at my partner, Mark, who really does have a 30-year track record, which would suggest he's an incredible investor. And we can sort of think all of those things. But again, the absolute degree of uncertainty at this stage of the market is so, so high that no matter how good you think you are, no matter how good other people say you are, no matter how good your track record says you are, you just don't know a lot. And not only do you not know a lot in like an epistemic sense about like what your ability to make a prediction about a specific outcome for a specific company, you don't know a lot about how you feel and how you behave at any given time. You can be the most self-aware person in the world. You can be a really experienced investor. You can be feeling on the top of your game, having hope super high energy. But like 
your brain just like malfunctions all the time. And so I think all of this averaging that happens, averaging over a portfolio, averaging over multiple rounds and whatever else, it sounds like you're destroying returns, but really what you're doing, you're just being honest. At least that's my feeling. Like I feel like I recognize that diversification is diversification. I recognize that it's much better to get all your money in up front at a lower price. I recognize all of that. In hindsight. (laughs) In hindsight. But I also recognize like the epistemic reality. And I also recognize that I'm, I'm a human being. And so that's why we're very careful. And like, that's why we average things over uh, in different dimensions. Anyway, perhaps that's a bit abstract, but. but one question we ask a lot at Village Global and a lot of people who are starting funds and start from scratch. And let's say, again, let's say there aren't fundraising constraints and also maybe not even uh, talent constraints is, hey, would you rather be YC? Would you rather be founder collective? Would you rather be first round? Would you rather be benchmark? I think the easy answer is it, it may be the best answer. It depends on your skills. But let, let's say you had the relevant skill. You could bring the relevant partners. Is it, hey, if. What's your, is there a superior strategy? Is it, hey, if you could pull it off, try to be benchmark or if, how would you even approach that? Yeah. I mean, this is one where I don't think it depends because we know what the market is. I mean, YC has the best business model in the industry yeah. just by okay. far. I yeah. just, I, it can't be replicated uh, most likely um, because I think there is a real network effect there. They have executed just phenomenally. So you, you I mean, you got to give them a lot of respect. Obviously, there's lots of other people making tons of money. You know, Benchmark maybe has the problem of everybody's too rich and who knows what will happen in the future, right, with Uber. I think you can look around and you can have a ton of respect for a lot of people um, who are just, have just found their way and they're doing it. But just YC from an institutional perspective has, has a phenomenal Because of continuity or, because, or because, like, where are they making money? Well, continuity is just a, it's a it's a logical extension of the core model working. I mean, the core model is really what matters, Right. When you do 250 companies a year, the, the way that I conceive of their strategy is they looked at the market and they said, hey, look, we can attract the best companies, right? So what, how many investments would we have to make to get all, I'll put this in quotes because actually a lot of it sits outside, but like get enough unicorns that we have a phenomenal model. They upped it to 250, presumably they think more than that is not necessary, their failure rate is out of control, right? Their failure rate is huge, but they know that it doesn't matter. And they've kind of sucked the air out of the market, right? They've made it very hard to run a competitive sort of business. Their cost basis is amazing. And then when you have that machine working, they actually go to LPs and say, well, here's the math. Here's what happens if we had this continuity fund. We just make more money. And LPs say, that's great. Here's some money, right? So, uh, you know, I just like watching people execute well, you know, in business, in any business. I think they've executed quite well, very strategically. Yeah, I have to agree with you. And I I just sort of would like to emphasize that a lot of it is marketing, Um, as in they have marketed some things to founders that are very real. I'm not saying they're marketing hot air. They're very real, which is the value of the YC network and the value of the advice and the way that they create scarcity around demo day and whatever else. Um, the way that they can connect a founder that has absolutely no network in the valley to everyone in the valley. They've marketed that so well that they're able to enjoy a price advantage, right? In the market. So it's just like Louis Vuitton markets so well that they can charge thousands of dollars for like a piece of leather that costs five bucks. YC has marketed so well, marketed again, very real things that they've put a lot of hard work into building and executed very well in building 
that they are able to get very, very good terms, very good terms, not just in terms of cost basis, like they come in at a really low price, but they get, I would say at the, at the extreme end of the market on pro rata rights and things like that. And then they have a fund to support that and whatever else. So, you know, in the long run, is that going to turn out to be good for founders? Because a lot of these things are recent developments. We'll see if it's good for founders to have those pro rata rights around forever and all these different rights that have been put in place in the last couple of years. But it's definitely good for YC in the meantime, and they, they're getting them. So, right. so the a lot question of founders is, must think they're good. Uh, you mentioned it can't be replicated. Let's have that conversation. Can YC be disrupted or can there be more? And some approaches you could, you could verticalize, you know, is YC Craigslist and you have a bunch of mm-hmm. their vertical accelerators. Or do you think that the world is, you know, there'll be more companies doing accelerators in the future and thus there's room for more? Yeah. I mean, you see some of that. You see some vertical accelerators and they're saying to these companies, look, if you're in urban tech, you should go to this urban tech accelerator. And I think to some extent that's true. Question is, well, will those companies pick you over YC? I think verticalization and rejig and specific accelerators to a lesser extent, because YC is very much consciously gone global, have some advantages. I know Village is building out a, um, a network-based strategy to really provide value add. You know, I've thought a bit about how you might try to compete with YC, and I think it's you need an asymmetric advantage, right? So, for example, you could uh, say, look, we're going to compete with YC by being virtual and free, right? They give you 125, 150K, I forget what it is, and take, you know, 7%. We're going to do something that we think is in the same ballpark and free and then provide these services to gain information to invest at market terms. I, I don't think anybody's going to say we're going to take YC's cookie cutter model and just do it better the same, that's just not going to work, right? The analogy I sort of think through is like, all right, if, you know, if YC is Oracle, right, what would be the MySQL, right? Like, how would we think through a model that's completely, um, completely asymmetric? Yeah. I think the thing that YC has done that other accelerators sort of miss is they've just nailed the whole problem of like keeping you funded after YC. They're so good at that. And really, that's the fertile variable at that point in time. Like, if the company doesn't get any more funding after the accelerator, it's dead. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. The whole thing was a fruitless exercise. And so, they focused on being really, really good at that. They are really good at that. They have an amazing track record at that. And so, any accelerator that comes in or any entity that comes in and wants to compete with YC, that's step one. Like, make sure you nail that. And then you have to have some other edge because YC is already good at that. And that could be, as Parker said, it could be price. So I, I disagree a little bit there, and I don't know how much time you want to spend on YC, but I think they've done something a little bit different, which is actually their failure rate after demo day is quite high. I would argue that it's probably, I don't have the numbers, but I would guess that we were much better at 500 startups at keeping companies alive. What they've done is they've said, we are a unicorn. Like Paul, Paul Graham wrote an article called Black Swan Farming, yeah. right? There's a cognitive bias in companies, which is everybody thinks that they're the unicorn, right? So Paul is saying, look, if you are a black swan, come here. But just definitionally, these things are so rare that almost certainly you aren't. That's not his problem, right? What they're very good at is getting the black swans in and those succeed. And what you don't, what they don't have to be good at, right? Yeah. Is if, if you would have been a black swan with some other model, but you died because you, you founded your company and they accepted you and you went through YC for three months and you couldn't raise money and you died. 
no one says like, oh my God, they killed that black swan, right? You see Dropbox, you see Airbnb, you see the successes, and that's what you, with your cognitive bias as a founder who think you have a 100% chance of being a black swan, see? And when 500 Startups, by contrast, goes out and says, hey, we love, you know, little ideas and ugly people and so on and so forth, the cognitive bias isn't to see yourself that way. I think they've done a great job at marketing to the people that they yeah, want to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they create a positive selection bias there, um, which is really good. I'm very skeptical of this, their ability to select, but yeah, anyway. What they do do, though, is on the fundraising side, I think to Ash's point, is the valuations are significantly higher. I, so and that cuts both ways. Actually, I think that kills a lot of companies. It kills I think, a sure. lot. I think a lot of YC companies get killed by YC demo day pricing. Yeah, I agree. But the black swans don't, right? right. And that's the thing. It's like if you raised at an $18 million cap coming out of demo day and you raised a million and a half dollars from a bunch of schmucks who like right. don't care if you get because you didn't talk to Ash or you yep. said, hey, Ash, sure. I'm not going to give you the $8 million price, right? right? Because these guys will give me 18 you don't get dinged for killing that company because you didn't help them do a deal that was good for the company and stay alive. Yeah. You only get credit for the success. That's the nature yeah. of VC. And the great company is going to raise their next round at 30 or 40 anyway. Yeah, it, so. it, it, I think it does kill companies that could have survived and figured it out in three years because yeah. they didn't figure it out in one. Um, so I do think that some of the early stage dynamics, let's not just pick on YC because yep. there's people writing 100K checks at 18. Yep. Those dynamics kill companies. Yeah. It puts you on this sort of sinusoidal on-ramp. But just like, look, you're making a bet. You've got to go super fast. Yeah. You're making a bet. You're and saying this is, you know, experienced founders, serial entrepreneurs and whatever else are super aware of where they raise because they know that raising at a certain valuation, meaning higher and higher valuations reduces your optionality. It leaves you less room for error. Yeah, it's funny. I just as an anecdote for founders out there, if you're still listening, why are you listening to this podcast? But, (laughs) you know, I saw around the other day where the company had raised at an $18 million cap. They'd only raised notes and they were raising like a pretty reasonable round at a 15 priced round doing the thing. And it was sort of characterized as this ugly down round. It was like, well, actually, no, you just raised a bunch of notes. So notes are rounds is one lesson here. And actually the idea that if you're raising at a lower valuation than your last one, um, that's bad is, is real in the market and will affect you. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, set a price ceiling, not a price fall. Right. I like it. What I'm trying to nail with the first round founder collective is assuming same interest, same skills, same everything, same access to capital. Is, is there a superior strategy? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess I'll just wrap on this, yeah. which, um, again is like, it's not, a, it's not going to give you the direction you're looking yeah. for if you're like <laughs> lost as to how do I create my fund? It's, right. um, start from first principles and stay true to what you know and true to yourself and what your skills are. And if that means starting a biotech incubator in Spain and only raising a $1 million fund, then do it. That could be the, the value in this business is all in the optionality. Like you can make as much money with a $1 million fund as you can with a billion dollar fund because you get paid in carry. And so don't start with what other people are doing in other parts of the market and don't start with what an investor, as Parker pointed out before, that has a billion dollar fund says how you should do things. Start with what you know, start with your edge and then build your track record from there. It's, it's, it's that hard and that simple. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I'd add that maybe we haven't talked as much explicitly about is, you know, we're talking about portfolios of companies, but you can also think about it as a portfolio of your time. Mm. So you can think about how you want to spend your time exactly. and you can think about where your time creates leverage for you that turns yeah. into money. 
And um, I think both of those things matter. What you tend to see is that the, the richer you get, the more you think about how you want to spend your time. And so probably, stop doing that now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but probably earlier, you, you, you want to think about where you get leverage on your time. Yeah. Say more about leverage on your time. Well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So if I'm going to spend an hour... And there's an expected value in dollars of how I spend that hour. You know, for Ash, that might be working with one of his portfolio companies because he's got 20% of his fund in there. I mean, I just saw a deal from an investor I won't mention where, you know, they brought an SPV AngelList because they legally can't put more of their fund into this company. That's awesome. That's they're making a bet. Um, they're spending their time presumably with that company. That might be super high leverage because they believe, whether it's true or not, they believe they can affect the outcome and that's going to have a higher expected value than just going and putting another chip over here on some other company. And that's really the the crux here is if you think you are a better picker and a better helper and your help really impacts companies, you're going to do fewer companies so you can spend more time with them. Yeah. I mean, some combination, one or the other, not necessarily even both, right? I think you might have different value at different stages, right? So I tend to think that I'm much more useful pre-product market fit so my time is worth much more to a company and maybe to myself picking companies and working with companies then once they hit that stage where it's like, all right, now we need to build big teams. We need to figure out how to scale this thing. We need to raise, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. There are parts of those things I can help with, but I think actually there's a lot more people that can help you build your product and engineering team and get that sorted out than there are people who are going to believe in you when your idea looks really dumb and it's just you and your co-founder and you look funny and you talk funny. And so I choose to spend my time there because I think the expected value of that investment is going to be higher. Yeah. And last question rapidly. How would you change the two and 20? Any suggestions for what you would do? Uh, for smaller funds, I'd give a fixed fee budget. Yeah. I mean, based, I based on the strategy, like we're going to launch this sort of fund and we have this marketing strategy and we need to spend this much money to execute it. And that might end up being 10% management yeah. fee. Or it might end up being one. I don't know. It depends. But I'd experiment with that. I think on the higher end, you get these bigger funds. You got a billion dollar fund taking 20 million bucks in management fees a year, right? Um, you can just project that out and you know you're going to get rich. There's, there's no question, right? Like just in terms of like, yep. how am I going to, you know, set a floor on my downside? If you've got a big fund, it's great, even if you have a GP commit. So I would personally love to see more innovation around GP commits. On the high end, I think you either need higher GP commits or lower fees because very few large funds can justify justify the fee structure with how they s- spend the money, right? They should be making their money on carry. I think that would be better aligned with, uh, with LPs. I think for small funds, I actually think you can do a lot with not very much money. If you look at the overhead of a Founders Collective, we've been talking about them a much. I think their management fees are actually okay. Where I see an opportunity in the market and LPs struggle with this is for somebody who's high judgment and could be an excellent VC, but doesn't have a bunch of money up front to put in a GP commit. I think there's an opportunity to think about that a little bit differently. So if you raise a $5 million fund, you know, a couple percent GP commit might be meaningful, particularly if you're not going to be making money right. and then you're going to do that again and you're not going to be liquid for 10 years. So I would love to see LPs think about opportunity cost as a GP commit. So for example, you know, I have a friend who's uh, working on raising a fund who could make a million bucks a year as an operator. I mean, he's phenomenal at it. He didn't make a lot of money because his startup ended up with some problems. He was the, he was an executive there, but not the founder. So he didn't get liquid on that, doesn't have a lot of money. His opportunity cost is actually a million bucks a year. 
And LPs are like, well, why don't you have any skin in the game? I mean, in my mind, that is skin in the game. And I think LPs who think about seed, and obviously we have a bias towards this early stage, I think there's a huge opportunity to think differently about uh, GP skin in the game, opportunity cost, these sorts of things at seed that just isn't happening at all right now. Guys, this was a great episode Um, for all the firms we mentioned in the podcast. We all have immense respect for them and if Indeed. any other Absolutely. VC listening to this or investor has been triggered in some way, we apologize. And we'll see uh, you on Twitter. We'll see- <laughs> no, this is, this is fun and it's a privilege to to do this and talk about this. Thank you guys so much for coming to the podcast. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 